When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fortsanopoli Cultural Podcast. This is a podcast about a Tanopoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. We've got four parts for you today, but I'll keep them short so the episode isn't too long. The bonus is that means you'll get three Napolitan songs to enjoy between parts. In part one, I'll review our huge win over Lazio on Thursday. In part two, we'll check in on the battle for Champions League qualification. In part three, we'll review our latest Femenile match, which was on Sunday against Milan. And in part four, I'll preview our match on Monday against Torino. So let's start with our massive 5-2 victory over Lazio on Thursday. We got goals from Lorenzo Insigne, who scored a brace, Matteo Politano, Dries Mertens, and Victor Osimhen. Lazio's goals were scored by Ciro Immobile and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic. This game was incredibly open right from the first kick of the match. Napoli's performance reminded me of two matches this season. It was very similar to the Fiorentina match where our finishing was incredible and we seemed to score on every chance we had. We had 10 shot attempts, 8 of which were on target and 5 of those ended up in the back of the goal. Lorenzo Insigne scored a brace, like he did against Fiorentina as well, including once from the penalty spot, and Matteo Politano scored a similar goal to the one he scored against Fiorentina as well. This match also reminded me of our win over Crotone in the sense that, despite scoring so many goals, there was still a nervous period where the lead felt like it could slip away. Finally, like in the Crotone match, I thought our strong play in the attack masked our relatively poor play at the back, though we didn't make any costly errors like we did in that match. Our friend Ben, who we had on Forza Napoli Worldwide, tweeted saying he doesn't know where we'd finish had Napoli played this way all season. My reply was we'd finish wherever Atalanta do because I thought this was an Atalanta-esque performance. Explosive attack, high scoring, plenty of fun, but also plenty of holes at the back. 
For Lazio, this match was the reverse of their previous match against Benevento. In that match, Benevento conceded goals but fought back in it and if nothing else made it interesting. This time it was Lazio who conceded goals, fought back in it and if nothing else made it interesting. We were treated to some of the best finishes we'll see from either side all season and Marco Di Bello lived up to his reputation as an official who's not shy about cautioning players. We'll cover all of that in this review, but first, let's review our starting lineups. Massimiliano Faris was on the touchline once again with Simone Inzaghi still positive for COVID. Lazio went with the exact same starting 11 that played in the Benevento match. Pepe Reina started in goal. Stefan Radu started in the center of the three-man back line with Francesco Acerbi to his left and Adam Marusic to his right. Mohamed Fares played as the left wing back and Manuel Lazzari played as the right wing back. Luis Alberto started in the center of the midfield with Lucas Leva to his left and Sergei Milinkovic-Savic to his right. Finally, Joaquin Correa and Chiro Immobile started together up top. Gennaro Gattuso made three changes to the squad he fielded against Inter and three changes to our predicted 11. Alex Meret continues to start in goal while David Ospina recovers from his injury. Kaladu Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas started at center back. Elcid Hisai started over Mario Rui at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started again at right back. Tiemoy Bakayoko came in to spell the suspended Diego Deme. He played alongside Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. Lorenzo Insigne started on the left wing and Matteo Politano got another start on the right wing over Chucky Lozano. Piotr Zielinski started again in the 10 spot and Dries Mertens started over Victor Osimhen at striker. So those were the starting lineups. I didn't do three keys for this match so we can go straight to our talking points. Let's start with the penalty decision. First, for anyone who's not sure if Sergei Milinkovic-Savage committed a foul on Kostas Manolas, that was definitely a foul. By the way, that's the second match in a row that Milinkovic-Savage has conceded a penalty. Simone Guadagno posted the official rule on Twitter, which was taken from the AIA Practical Guide. The AIA is the Associazione Italiana Arbitri, which is the Italian Referees Association. Paragraph 11 of the practical guide clearly states that if a footballer makes a dangerous play by lifting one leg and when the opponent tries to head the ball, that leg makes contact with the opponent's head, the referee shall award a direct free kick or a penalty kick, which of course depends on where the foul is committed. So what that means is it doesn't matter that Milinkovic-Savic touched the ball first, which is a relatively new rule. In the past, if you got the ball first, it wasn't a foul. Now it's a question of whether the play was dangerous. Based on that rule, if a boot touches a head, it is automatically a dangerous play. Now, I think that also had a lot to do with how high Milinkovic-Savic's foot was. Obviously, if Manolas tries to head a ball that is rolling on the ground, then the assessment would be different. Finally, it doesn't matter that Milinkovic-Savic got there first. On the replay, it almost looks like Manolas hit Milinkovic-Savic's foot with his head rather than the reverse. But Milinkovic-Savic's foot was about chest high, and at that height, a player has the right to go for a header. So I think that was a clear penalty, and because that foul occurred prior to the potential foul by Hisai on Lazzari, the penalty was given. Had that not happened, I think we'd have a much more difficult VAR review at the opposite end when Lazzari blew past Hisai who appeared to pull him down. I saw quite a few people online suggesting that that was not a foul. I think the penalty would have been given and a red card shown as Lazzari was denied a clear scoring chance. Lazzari did go to ground a little bit easily but you could clearly see Hisai put his arm on Lazzari's shoulder there. 
Thankfully, it didn't come down to that because that would have completely changed the outcome of this match. It's hard to say whether that was a smart decision by Hisai. Sometimes players make plays like that and the opponent misses the penalty so it ends up being worth it, but more often than not, the penalty is converted. Also, Lazzari is incredibly quick, but he's also a poor finisher, so my preference would have been to let him have the shot and just hope he misses it. In either case, he probably scores, but at least in the latter, you don't get a red card and play 89 minutes down a man. Next, let's talk about the explosive Napoli attack. Like against Fiorentina, we scored goals in a variety of ways, but I want to focus on two things, the counterattack and our finishing. We scored two goals on the counter, the first by Matteo Politano. That play started with a long ball by Hisai to Insigne at about midfield. Insigne played a gorgeous long ball to Mertens at the edge of the area, who turned and played the ball out wide to Politano. He cut into his left, as we know he likes to do, and fired low and hard past Reyna, who probably should have done better. It seemed like Reyna was expecting a shot to the far post and got caught leaning the wrong way. Our third goal came from the counterattack as well. That play actually started with a great save by Meret on Milinkovic-Savic. I actually thought that Milinkovic-Savic was offside and was expecting the goal to be ruled out for that reason, which would have been fitting given the bizarre sequence on the penalty decision. However, the offside was not called. We have to give Hisai credit for his play on this goal. He was the one who cleared the ball out after Meret made the save. Then he continued his run and Insigne returned the ball to him and you could see that he was tempted to take the shot but he wisely laid it off to his captain instead. Finally, there was that move that Insigne made to lose Leva before that ridiculous chip over a helpless Pepe Reina. On most nights, that finish would have been the nicest. However, for me, Dries Merton scored the goal of the night. First, you had the backheel turn from Zielinski on the throw-in to set up the cross. I thought Zielinski had another quiet match, but he has so much skill that he can produce a moment of brilliance like this just about at any point in time. The ball to Mertens at the top of the box was excellent as well, but the finish was something else. Mertens' technique was flawless, striking the ball on the volley. The level of difficulty on that play is through the roof, and as Tony Darigo said on the broadcast, that wasn't luck, but 39 out of 40 times that ball misses the target. You almost never see a player put the ball into the roof of the goal from outside of the area. With that goal, Mertens tied Antonio Voyak for most goals scored for Napoli in Serie A. Initially, I thought that was the reason he shed some tears after the goal. As it turns out, Mertens' grandmother had passed away a week prior to the match. That is why he was crying and that's who he was pointing to in the sky after he scored. Finally, you had Victor Osimhen with another brilliant finish to close out the match, just when it looked like Lazio might be coming back from a four-goal deficit. I actually tweeted during the match that it was Gattuso who decided to start Politano over Lozano and Mertens for Osimhen. We love to hate on Gattuso when things don't go our way, but we don't seem to give him enough credit when they do. Yes, the players score great goals, but he still deserves credit for his player choices. Then shortly after I made that tweet, Lozano and Osimhen, who replaced Politano and Mertens, linked up to score the fifth goal. Quite frankly, as long as we're playing like this, I don't care who starts and I don't care who scores. I love all these players and I think Osimhen and Lozano will both have important roles next season and they both could end up being the starters. I don't think Lozano got enough credit for the play he made here, first for the tackle he made on Echerbi to win possession and then for the quick ball in front of Osimhen. Osimhen's first touch wasn't great but the finish was spectacular and I love the joy when Osimhen scores. It's similar to when Merton scores and Lozano celebrated as if he had scored the goal himself. Moving on, I do want to touch briefly on Lazio's play because I don't think the scoreline was an accurate reflection of how this match went. 
Obviously, that penalty kick changed the complexion of the match. I thought Lazzari was causing us all kinds of problems early on in the match. He didn't ultimately get that penalty decision, but he did draw a yellow card on Costas Manolas, which means Manolas will miss the match against Torino on Monday. You could make the argument that despite going into the break down 2-0, Lazio were the better side in the first half. I thought Lazio responded really well after the Politano goal and if they weren't the better side for the entire first half, they were definitely the better side for the middle third of it. In the 19th minute, Joaquin Correa struck the upright after a lovely interplay with Milinkovic-Savage. Chiro Immobile had a chance a minute later after taking down Milinkovic-Savage's cross beautifully on his chest, but Politano made a great play to shield the ball from Immobile, and in the end nothing came of it. I thought we were definitely the better side in the second half though, but Lazio did have a very good 10 minute spell, during which they scored both of their goals. Chiro Immobile scored his 6th goal in his last 6 matches against us, so he scored in every game against us for the last 3 seasons. Had this game been played a week prior, Immobile might not have scored there, but he scored a brace against Benevento which surely restored his confidence. That goal started with a poor giveaway by Zielinski in a dangerous area. Andreas Pereira played a gorgeous through ball to Immobile who timed his perfectly. He took one touch before curling his shot around Meret to make the score 4-1. Five minutes later, Milinkovic-Savage scored with a gorgeous free kick to the top corner. Meret did well to get across and because he managed to get a hand on the ball, you couldn't help but feel like he could have done better. Milinkovic-Savage now has 8 goals and 10 assists on the season. We all love Zielinski, but I think it's down to Milinkovic-Savage and Inter's Nicolo Barella for the Best Midfielder in Serie A award. I'll close this review with a couple of quick hits. First, this wasn't Meret's best performance, but I don't think he was as bad as some people were suggesting after the match. He had a couple of nervous moments on the ball, but one of those two moments was caused by Insigne's indecision in front of his own goal. Meret did make that save that I mentioned that led to the third goal, and he also made a very good punch on a Lazio corner kick in the dying seconds of the match. I thought Giovanni Di Lorenzo had another excellent match at the back. He's been phenomenal since we got back to playing once a week. I mentioned Matteo Politano. There were a few options to choose from, but he was my man of the match. I think Roberto Mancini needs to take a serious look at both Di Lorenzo and Politano because both are playing at a really high level right now. If I'm being honest though, I think Di Lorenzo is the only one who could get the call up. I think Politano deserves to be there, but he didn't get the call up for the last international break, which means he hasn't played at all with this squad. Finally, I was pleasantly surprised with the play of Teemo Bakayoko, who was deputizing for Diego Demme. Other than that 15 minute spell in the first half where Lazio seemed to run through our midfield with ease, I thought Bakayoko played really well. Now maybe it's because I've lowered my expectations for him, but he didn't make any mistakes and I thought he was very calm and assured on the ball. That will do for part 1. In part 2, we'll check in on the top of the table.
Next, let's take a look at the battle for Champions League qualification. Heading into this round, Milan were in second place on 66 points, two points clear of Atalanta. Atalanta were two points clear of Juventus, who were two points clear of us in fifth. Lazio were hot on our heels, two points behind us with a game in hand, and Roma were theoretically still in the hunt in seventh place, eight points back of Juve in the final Champions League spot. So let's start with Milan, who continue to struggle, losing 2-1 to Sassuolo. Hakan Chalanoglu opened the scoring for Milan, but a second-half brace from Giacomo Raspadori secured the three points for the Nero Verdi. Teo Hernandez, Ismail Benacer, and Zlatan Ibrahimovic were all out injured for this match. Diogo Dallo, Suleiho Miete, and Rafael Leao started in their places. Meanwhile, Roberto De Zerbi made five changes. Domenico Berardi made his first start in five weeks, while Giacomo Ferrari and Manuel Locatelli returned from their voluntary quarantines. Neither side created much in the first half, but Milan opened the scoring at the half-hour mark. Alexis Salamaker switched the ball to Hakan on the left side of the area. Diogo Dello played the overlap, which caused Mert Muldur to hesitate just enough to give Hakan the shot, and boy did he take it. He curled his shot around the outstretched Andrea Consigli, and into the top corner. I thought Dalo and Salamakers were both good in this match. Dalo made an excellent block on Berardi at the end of the half, and Salamakers had a decent effort stopped by Consigli early in the second half. Sassuolo had two chances in the half, one at the start and one at the end. Jeremy Boga had a chance in the 13th minute after a clever backheel through ball from Filip Juricic, but Gijo Donnarumma got down to make the save. Then there was that Berardi chance at the end of the half. Consigli was also excellent in this match. He made a similar save on Hakan in the 61st minute to keep the deficit at 1. A few minutes later, the Derby went to his bench, replacing Juricic with Hamid Traore, Moldur with Jeremy Tolian, and Gregoire de Ferrell with Raspadori. You probably know by now that if I'm reporting substitutes, it's probably because they made an impact. Two of those substitutes combined to score the equalizer. In the 76th minute, Raspadori redirected Tolian's shot into the back of the goal. Then less than 10 minutes later, Raspadori put Sassuolo ahead. Berardi played Raspadori into the area. He made a gorgeous first touch to get around Fikayo Tomori before firing a shot across the face of the goal, off the upright, and in. That was his fourth of the season. Raspadori has really made the most of the time he's had to play since Caputo got hurt. As Patrick Hendrick said in the broadcast, you can see why Sassuolo loaned Gianluca Scamacca to Genoa because Raspadori is such a talent. Sassuolo nearly added a third with another substitute, Lucas Haraslin, charging down the left wing. His shot took a deflection, but Donnarumma managed to keep it out. Milan had a glorious chance to equalize in the 88th minute. Ferrari tackled Leao in Sassuolo's box, which match official Juan Lucas Saki deemed to be a back pass, so when Consigli punched the ball out, Saki called a handball and awarded Milan an indirect free kick just at the top of the 6-yard box. In a way, the free kick was too close to the goal though. As soon as Brahim Diaz touched the ball to Rade Krunic, Raspadori pounced to block the shot, so not only did Raspadori score a brace, he also contributed at the other end. That turned out to be Milan's final chance of the half, so like I said, their struggles in 2021 continue, losing to Sassuolo for the first time in over five years. Juve beat Parma 3-1 with goals from unexpected goal scorers in Alexandro and Matthijs de Ligt. Gigi Buffon started in goal against the club where he first made his name. Federico Chiesa was out with a slight injury, but with Paolo Dybala fit again, that wasn't much of a loss, especially playing against a side on the brink of relegation. As expected, Juve dominated the play in the first half and should have opened the scoring early on. Dybala played a low hard cross into the area from the left wing. Ronaldo turned the ball on target, but straight at Parma keeper Simone Colombi, who started in place of Luigi Seppe. 
Much to everyone's surprise, Padma opened the scoring about midway through the half. Weston McKenney fouled Gervinho in a dangerous area of the pitch. To that point, Padma had not created a single chance. In fact, they had very little of the ball. Gaston Brugman took the free kick and struck it beautifully up and over the wall and into the corner of the goal. The replay actually showed that it was Ronaldo who got beat again in the wall. It almost seemed as though he was more concerned about protecting his face than blocking the shot. Instead of jumping, which we know Ronaldo is capable of, in fact he might have the best leap in all of Serie A, he tucked his head inside his arms and didn't jump at all. Like I said, that's the second time this season Ronaldo didn't jump in the wall and the shot went over him and into the goal. After the goal, Parma dropped into a low block and took the space away from Juve who weren't passing quickly or crisply enough to get through. But one way to beat the low block is from the set piece and Juve did just that a few minutes before the break. Juan Cuadrado played a deep corner kick to Delict. He headed the ball back into the danger area where Alexandro controlled with his first touch before smashing his volley past Colombi. That was his first goal of the season but it wouldn't be his last. Juve quite literally started the second half the way they ended the first. Cuadrado played a cross into the area. Dybala might have gotten a slight flick on the ball which fell for Sandro who was left on mark at the back post. He headed in this time to give Juve the lead and to complete his first brace in his career. Parma didn't have many chances all match, but in the 64th minute they nearly equalized with a corner kick of their own. Giuseppe Pezzella was left completely unmarked in the area, and he beat Buffon with his header, but Artur was on the post and cleared the ball off the line. Only a few minutes later, Juve put the game away from yet another corner kick. Once again, Cuadrado played the corner, this time to Matthias De Ligt at the near post. The Dutchman attacked the ball and flicked a beautiful header past Colombi to record his first goal of the campaign as well. Parma had a couple of chances late in the match from Jan Caramo and Mattia Bani, but once Juve went up by two, this game was pretty much over. Atalanta drew Roma 1-1, Ruslan Malinovsky scored for Atalanta while Brian Cristante scored for Roma. Roma started a back three consisting entirely of former Atalanta players, meanwhile Ricardo Calafiori made his first league start for Roma. This match reminded me a bit of our match against Spezia early in the season. If you look at the stats, you could see that Atalanta were the better attacking side. They had 22 shot attempts, 9 of which were on target. Roma were giving Atalanta far too much space on the ball. If you had to criticize Atalanta, it would be for their finishing. They were creating excellent chances, but the quality of the finishing was poor. In the first half alone, Malinovsky, Duvan Zapata, Josip Ilicic, and Remo Freuler all had point-blank shots that they hit with a ton of power but all were straight at goalkeeper Paul Lopez. What they needed to do was shoot low and across the face of the goal. Malinovsky did get one goal about midway through the first half though. Robin Gosens played an excellent low ball into the area through about four Roma players, and the finish from Malinovsky was much better than on those other chances I mentioned. He smashed his shot into the top corner. Meanwhile, Roma looked pretty dreadful, at least in the attack. They didn't get their first real chance until about an hour into the match when Henrik Mkhitaryan fired from the top of the box with his left foot, but the shot sailed over the bar. One thing you have to respect Atalanta for is staying true to their identity. They will never sit back and defend. Gasparini brought Luis Muriel in off the bench, looking to add a second goal, but it never came. While the issue in the first half was shooting straight at Lopez, the issue in the second half was not hitting the target. Both Christian Romero and Luis Muriel had excellent chances, but they couldn't hit the goal. The turning point of the match came in the 69th minute when Robin Gosens picked up a second yellow card for a late tackle on Jordan Bertou. 
I don't think you could argue with either card, to be honest. The first came early in the second half for another late tackle on Rick Karsdorp. Only five minutes later, Branke Stanta equalized with a gorgeous strike from about 25 to 30 meters out. Atalanta literally moved out of the way to give him the shot, and Cristante took full advantage. Roma definitely made the most of having an extra man. Edin Dzeko nearly put Roma ahead in the 81st minute, but this time Pierluigi Golini made the save. Roger Ibanez also picked up two yellow cards in the 94th minute and conceded a free kick to Atalanta in a pretty dangerous area. Muriel took the free kick but put his shot over the bar and this match ended 1-1. So this ended up being a huge round for us. Even Inter dropped points with a draw to Spezia which really doesn't change anything for them. They're still going to win the Scudetto. But with Milan and Atalanta dropping points, we now have four teams competing for three Champions League positions and they're all separated by only three points. Milan are still in second but they're now only one point ahead of Atalanta and Juventus. We're now only two points behind both of them, but still in fifth. We've separated ourselves from Lazio, who are now five points back of us, but if they win their game in hand against Torino, they would be only two points behind us. They're definitely not out of the race with plenty of games to play, including a big one against Milan on the weekend. Roma are on 55 points, and they now need to be careful they don't lose their Europa League place, as Sassuolo are only six points back of them. So that will do for part two. In part three, we'll review our latest Femminile match. Next, we'll review our Femminile match against Milan. Heading into this match, we were third bottom of the table, level on points with San Marino. However, we were coming into this match in decent form with a win and two draws in our previous three matches. Milan were in fine form as well with seven wins in their previous eight Serie A matches. The sole loss was to the mighty Juventus, who are literally unbeatable. Juventus were a perfect 17-0-0 on the season heading into this round, while Milan were second with a record of 15-0-2. Unfortunately, Vivian Beal was not available for this match. In fact, she won't be available for the balance of the season. About a week before the match, she suffered a major knee injury in training. She required surgery to repair a torn ACL, MCL, and meniscus. Carminia Botta was called up to join the squad in Beal's place. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Milan lined up in a 3-5-2 with Maria Crenciova in goal. Laura Agard started in the center of the back three with Laura Fuzetti at center left and Francesca Vitale at center right. Linda Tucheri Cimina played at the left wing back and Valentina Bergamaschi played at the right wing back. Veronica Boquette started in the center of the midfield with Yui Hasegawa to her left and Refalo Jane to her right. Finally, Natasha Dowie and Valentina Giacinti started together up top. 
Alessandro Pistolesi made two changes to the squad that he fielded against Empoli, at least as far as personnel go. He also switched from a 4-3-3 to a 3-5-2, which was the formation that he used in the second half of the Empoli match. Paola Di Marino came back into the starting 11 to play in the center of the three-woman back line. Guomi Arnato-Tier played at center left and Alexandra Hune played at center right. Jenny Hjolman played as the left wing back and Federico Cafrata played as the right wing back. Sarah Houche started in the center of the midfield with Emma Erico to her left and Eleonora Goldini to her right. Finally, Evi Popadinova returns from injury to start alongside Izota Noki up top. So let's get to the match. We started out really positively with Cafarata winning a corner kick, followed by a near-perfect execution of the set piece. Noki played an outswinging cross to the near corner of the area. Houchet made the run and hit the ball on the volley. She didn't connect fully, but the shot lobbed into the far post and stayed out. Milan quickly responded and thought they went ahead only a few minutes later. Fuzetti made a great run on the right wing. The ball eventually found Boquette in the middle of the field and she played a through ball to Downey. Dowie beat Tasselli, but the flag went up, so the score remained nil-nil. You can see very early in the match that this Milan side is on a completely different level than we are. The way they pass the ball, their movement off the ball, their positioning were all excellent. Moments after the disallowed goal, Milan worked the ball around nicely before Hasegawa fired on target from distance, but Tasselli made the save. Tasselli was busy early on. In the 8th minute, she made another save, this time on Giacinti from a sharp angle. When we had the ball, Milan pressed high, they didn't give us any time on the ball so we couldn't get organized. Instead, we were forced to either turn back or go long, and more often than not, when we did that, we gave the ball straight back to Milan. You sensed that it was only a matter of time before Milan got their goal, and that came in the 21st minute. Milan were a bit fortunate, but again, their build-up on the wing was excellent. Milan's one-touch passes were simply too good to stop. Fuzetti played the ball down the line to Cimini, who immediately returned the ball to Fuzetti. She played a one-touch pass to Agard on the line. Agard cut the ball into Giancinti in the center of the field. Giancinti played a through ball to Cimini, who had continued her run down the left wing. Cimini played a low cross into the area that should have been an easy interception for Tesselli, but the young keeper spilled the ball and Bergamaschi was there to slot in the opening goal of the match. Milan doubled their lead only 4 minutes later, Boquette crossed the ball into the area, Tesselli punched the ball out but straight to Hasegawa at the top of the box, she head over the keeper and into the back of the goal to make the score 2-0. Milan should have added a third after Bergamaschi blew past Yeoman on the right wing before playing a perfect cross to Dowie in front of the goal. Somehow the striker shot straight at Tasselli from only a few feet away and the score remained 2-0. Milan did get a third just before the break though. Houchet turned the ball over to Cimini just outside the Napoli box. She squared to Giacinti in the area whose shot was stopped by Tasselli. Unfortunately, the ball rebounded off of Dowie and ended up in the back of the goal, so if Milan wasn't good enough on their own, they certainly had luck on their side in this match as well. Milan took that 3-0 lead into the break. Pistolesi made two changes at the half, replacing Erico with Lara Pedersen and Popadinova with Mariah Cameron. However, it didn't take long for Milan to add a fourth. Vitale crossed the ball into the area just out of the reach of Di Marino. Giacinti took the ball down brilliantly before firing past Tasselli to score her 17th goal of the season. 
Milan basically passed the ball around for the rest of the match that Huche shot in the opening minutes proved to be our best chance of the match as this one finished 4-0. Pistolesi admitted after the match that Milan were far superior. He said we should and could have done more, but even if we were our best, Milan are superior. He also admitted to resting players ahead of our biggest game of the season against San Marino on May 1st. Speaking of which, we got a huge favor from Hellas Verona, who defeated San Marino 2-0, so despite the loss, we remain outside of the relegation zone. So that will do for part 3. In part 4, we'll preview our match on Monday against Torino. Chissà mamma non piange, è vero Mai. Ma se non soffi non cade il velo no. Che ti fa vivere in bianco e nero no. Un uomo libero segue la sua strada Anche se è sbagliata Ci vediamo alla prossima cazzata In the final part, we'll preview our match on Monday against Torino. This is the first of six matches against clubs in the bottom half of the table. That does not mean this stretch will be easy though. Five of the six teams are fighting for survival currently. Udinese is the highest ranked, currently on 36 points, which is 8 points clear of the relegation zone. We play them in round 36, so hopefully by then they have guaranteed themselves survival. Likewise, we play Fiorentina in the penultimate round of the season. They are currently on 33 points, so hopefully they too have guaranteed survival by then. The next three matches could be the most difficult. We have Torino followed by Cagliari and then Spezia. They are currently on 31 points, 28 points, and 33 points respectively. The matches against Torino and Cagliari will probably be the most difficult out of those three. Torino are only three points clear of Cagliari who sit in the final relegation spot. Torino do have a game in hand but it's a tough match against a Lazio team who are still alive in the battle for the Champions League qualification spots so Torino would have to consider any points in that match to be a bonus. The way things are going I think Torino and Cagliari will both stay up and Benevento will join Parma and Crotone on the way back down to Serie B. Benevento have only one win to go along with seven draws in their last 16 matches that's only 10 points from a possible 48 which quite frankly warrants relegation. Before that run Benevento were sitting comfortably in 10th position so this has been a collapse of epic proportions. I'm recording this segment on Saturday just before Benevento host Udinese so that's a massive match for both of those clubs. 
Back to this match though, Torino enter it in fine form, undefeated in their last four. They stole points from Juventus with a 2-2 draw. Torino were actually leading that match before conceding the equalizer in the 79th minute. They followed that up with a massive win over Udinese, again a team they are competing with for survival. Then they took advantage of a Roma team playing on short rest after their second leg against Ajax in the Europa League. Torino won that match 3-1. Roma scored early in the match, but then Torino responded really well and fully deserved the three points there. Finally, Rolando Mandragora scored a beautiful goal to equalize against Cagliari in another massive match in the battle for survival. That match finished 1-1 and our friend David Ferrini did a great job calling that match. Of course, we are coming off a big win over Lazio as we talked about in part 1. We're 7-2-1 in our last 10 matches including wins over Milan, Roma and Lazio. All teams were battling with for Champions League qualification. The one loss was against Juventus, who's in that mix as well, and the two draws were against Sassuolo and Inter. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Davide Nicola lines up in a 3-5-2. Salvatore Sirigu should return in goal after missing Torino's previous three matches after contracting coronavirus while on international duty. Torino managed to get some good results with Vanya Milinkovic Savic in goal, but at the same time, Torino probably could have taken all three points from Bologna had it not been for some poor goalkeeping by Milinkovic Savic on Musa Barrow's goal. For the last two matches, Nicola has used a back three of Gleason Bremer, Armando Itzo, and Nicolas Nkulu. Bremer and Itzo play just about every game, while Nkulu has rotated with Alessandro Bongiorno and Lianco. That third choice really dictates where these players will line up. Nicola prefers to play Nkulu or Lianco out wide, so when they play, one of Bremer or Itzo will play in the middle. If Bongiorno plays, he will line up in the center of the back three. Bremer would play center left, and Itzo would play center right. I think we'll see Christian Ansaldi at left wing back and Mergen Voivoda at right wing back. Neither played against Bologna, but I think that was to rest them during the midweek round. Prior to the Bologna match, they were starting quite regularly. Simone Verdi lines up in the center of the midfield, which allows him to get forward and play as a trequartista in the attack. Rolando Mandragora and one of Thomas Rincon or Sasha Lukic will round out the midfield. Mandragora has been phenomenal this season since he joined from Udinese. He's one of two Napolitan players in this Torino squad, the other being Armando Izzo. He scored a gorgeous goal against Bologna. If you haven't seen that, definitely check it out. It's great to see Mandragora playing well. He's only 23 years old, but a lot of people wrote him off after he sustained a season-ending knee injury last season. As far as the other midfield spot goes, I'm going to go with Rincon to get the start. Finally, we should see Andrea Bellotti and Antonio Sanabria start together up top. Sanabria will be well rested after playing only the final 20 minutes against Bologna. He's been excellent since joining from Real Betis. He has 5 goals in 8 appearances for the Granata. For Napoli, Gattuso will line up in the 4-2-3-1 with Alex Meret in goal. Kalidou Koulibaly will start at centre-back. Kostas Manolas is suspended for this match due to yellow card accumulation, so I think we're going to see Amir Rachmani step in here. We saw Gattuso replace Manolas with Rachmani against Lazio, which is a pretty strong indication that Rachmani is now ahead of Maksimovic. I think Gattuso used Rachmani there to give him a few minutes, knowing he would have to start the Torino game. Left-back is always one of the most difficult positions to predict. Lately, it seems like Gattuso has been alternating between El Cid Hisai and Mario Rui, which suggests that Mario Rui will start this one. There's never any doubt at right-back, that spot is owned by Giovanni Di Lorenzo. Diego Deme returns from his suspension, so he'll line up with Fabian Ruiz in the double pivot. 
Finally, I think we'll see the same front four that we saw against Lazio. Lorenzo Insigne will line up on the left wing, Matteo Politano on the right wing, Piotr Zielinski in the 10th spot, and Dries Mertens at striker. I was surprised Gattuso started Politano and Mertens against Lazio, but he probably wanted Politano for the form that he's in at the moment and Mertens for his experience. So those are our starting lineups. Next, let's get to our three keys to the match. Our first key to the match is that we need to be creative in the midfield. As we know, Torino play in a low block, like we saw against Inter, that really negates Osimhen's weapons. Inter didn't even play in a low block, they played in a mid block, and that still pretty much took him out of the game. That means we'll need to beat Torino with our passing and our movement off the ball, which is partly why I think we'll see Mertens start over Osimhen in this match. Osimhen is a more traditional striker, but in a match like this, we can only really use him for his height with crosses from the wings, and he's not particularly good in the air either. Mertens, on the other hand, can interchange positions with Zielinski in the center of the midfield. He often swaps positions with the Insignia as well, where Mertens will shift out wide and Insignia will drift into the middle. I think Gattuso recognizes that we need to focus on passing the ball because much of the training session on Saturday was focused on passing drills. We can also expect to see our fullbacks get forward to support the attack, whether it's Mario Rui or LCT Sai at left back, you will see the left back overlapping with the Insignia on the left wing. Likewise, if Politano starts, we can expect to see Di Lorenzo overlap on the right wing. That's an argument for starting Politano over Lozano as well. Like Osimhen, it will be very difficult to take advantage of Lozano's pace with Torino sitting deep. Of course, with our fullbacks getting forward, we need to watch out for the counterattack, which is our second key to the match. As is the case for pretty much every match, we need to be careful not to get caught on the counterattack with our fullbacks getting forward. In fairness, we've been much better at defending the counterattack in the second half of the season than we were in the first half. Stopping Torino really amounts to stopping three players, Balotti, Sanabria, and Verdi. They've combined to score 20 of Torino's 46 goals, so they do get goals from a variety of different players. Simone Zaza is second in the team with 7 goals, so he's a bit of a super sub. 46 goals scored is more than any other team in the bottom half of the table. Bellotti and Verdi lead the team in assists as well with 7 and 5 respectively. Finally, Sanabria has a knack for scoring in big matches. Of the 5 goals he scored this season, one was against Inter, another was against Juventus, and yet another was against Roma. So Rachmani will have a big opportunity to show his worth here, with Koulibaly likely to be marking Bellotti. Our final key to the match is we need to play our game. I was originally going to make this key that we have to finish our chances. That was certainly a big issue in our previous match against Torino. We took 15 shot attempts in that match, but we only hit the target with 6 of them. However, it wasn't just about the final shot. For me, that was one of the worst games we've played all season. It was also about the build-up. We lacked any kind of urgency in that match, even after we went down a goal. We didn't start showing any urgency until we tied the game in stoppage time. We also lacked an identity. We were just crossing the ball into the area and hoping for the best. At least half of our crosses were either too short or too long. We looked disjointed in the midfield, and finally we played way too timid for a match against Torino. We played that game like we were playing against Inter or Juventus. That was the first time that I criticized Gattuso because that approach was really on him. The head official for this match is Paolo Valeri. He's officiated 24 Napoli games dating back to 2008. We have a record of 15 wins, 5 draws, and 4 losses in those matches. 
but it hasn't been great lately. He did officiate the 2-0 win over Sampdoria, but prior to that he did the 3-1 loss to Milan and the 1-1 draw to Torino in the first meeting. Valeri's assistants will be Stefano Del Giovanni and Davide Imperiale. The fourth official is Francesco Forno, and Gianluca Aureliano is on the VAR, assisted by Dario Ceccioni. For my prediction, I'm going to go with a 3-0 Napoli win. I'll give the goals to Lorenzo Insigne, Matteo Politano, and Victor Osimhen again off the bench. I think this is going to be a completely different match than the first meeting. We're firing on all cylinders right now. Our confidence is up, and aside from David Ospina and Fauzi Gulam, we're fully fit. That's a big difference between this match and the first meeting. We played that game with a completely different squad. Koulibaly was injured, so Manolas and Maximovic played at center back. Fabian was out of form so Bakayoko and Deme played in the double pivot and both Osimhen and Mertens were injured so we started Petania at striker. Perhaps most importantly it took us a while but we finally figured out how to pass the ball in the midfield. I think a lot of that has to do with Fabian Ruiz and how he's adapted to playing in a more deep lying midfield role. All of a sudden we're playing quick one touch passes which I think is critical to breaking down Torino's low block. This could easily be a low scoring match but I think we're going to score at least one in the first half which will make the game more open. Torino will have to seek out an equalizer which means we'll have opportunities to score on the counter. If that's the case I think there will be a lot more space to play with in the second half and that's why I have Osimhen scoring the third. So that will do for this preview. I hope you enjoy the match. That will also do it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please share it with a friend and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I'll be back next week, hopefully with another episode of Fortsanopoli Worldwide to review this match. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Forza Napoli sempre. Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.